is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. A handshake, a photo and a sign of better trade relationships between Australia and China. Now, the China-Australia relationship has embarked on the right path of improvement and development. I'm heartened to see that. A healthy and stable China-Australia relationship serves the common interests of our two countries and two peoples. That's the commentary of China's President Xi for you there. We'll have a look at that today with Australia's Agriculture Minister Murray Watt, who will join you on a big day for agriculture in Australia as well. A discussion paper or the government really asking for feedback from agriculture on how it plans to get to net zero by 2050, how it fits in to the government's plans. We're going to hear all about that shortly on the program too. Right now, though, let's head to some rural news, some sad rural news today. Emma Field has the details for you. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day, Warwick. Let's start in Victoria today with the sad news. A French backpacker died from a suspected snake bite while working as a grain harvest casual in Nullawil. The ABC has confirmed emergency services were called to a Nullawil property on October the 24th after a man's friend found him unresponsive. He was airlifted to Melbourne's Alfred Hospital in a critical condition, suffering from cardiac arrest. It's understood that 25-year-old's life support was switched off two days later. Victoria Police are preparing a report for the coroner. And dry times are continuing in northern Australia with a Queensland avocado farmer saying it's the driest season he's witnessed in 20 years at Amamore near Gympie. The big dry has killed 90 of his trees and forced him to sell the best crop he's ever had at reduced prices. John Tidy says the situation has been dire. It's just been the driest October that I can remember. We've been here 20 years. The trees are really struggling at the moment. All the leaves have fallen off. I have still got fruit on to pick. I've probably got about two tonne of avocados to take off. And the fruit have gone soft on some trees and they've fallen on the ground. And next year's crop as well, the new crop has fallen on the ground as well. I've probably lost around 90-odd trees. The trees have actually died. I'm going to have to probably push them out because I just couldn't keep the water up to them. The water is actually flowing a little bit underground, but we've been on restrictions uh, for roughly three weeks at the moment. The new peak body for beef farmers in Australia, Cattle Australia, has announced its new chief executive. The organisation's first CEO, Luke Bowen, was appointed in February, but left unexpectedly in September, leaving farmer Adam Coffey in charge. But today it's been announced that Dr Chris Parker will take up the top job from November the 15th. Dr Parker is originally from WA and was the Federal Department of Agriculture's first Assistant Secretary for the Biosecurity Animal Division, plus the National Animal Disease Preparedness Coordinator. He's also the former CEO of the APVMA. Northern Australia is about to get its first quarantine glasshouse facility in a bid to help stop the spread of invasive plants. The half-a-million-dollar biosecurity facility will be based in Cairns at James Cook University's Smithfield campus with construction to start next year. The collaboration with the Australian Tropical Herbarium will be the only facility of its kind outside Brisbane. Weed ecologist Dr Daniel Montesinas says the work at the facility will focus on better understanding pest plants. The facility 
from the outside looks pretty much like a fancy glass house. It's, but it's a glass house. It's just a fancy glass house that is it's built to very high standards of quality. There can be no gaps anywhere in the entire glass house. There has to be an antechamber, so a double glazed door. You never have both doors open. One needs to be locked before the other gets in. There is a lot of protocol around how to get in. Everything that goes in has to be killed before it comes out. <laughs> so that's the main thing. So that's why you're allowed to import things. The president of the National Peak Body for the Industrial Hemp Industry says $5 million of research funds is needed each year. Tim Schmidt is a Tasmanian grower and has welcomed the $2.5 million hemp research program grant over five years from AgriFutures Australia. He says the funding is a start, but more is needed. Oh, it needs buckets more than that. We're looking at um, supporting a policy of um, $5 million per annum at a federal level that could be leveraged against other state and private industry uh, support for the for for research and development, but this launch here of the two and a half million dollars over five years, it's small, but it's a really important start. And finally, the world's oldest cowboy, Cootamundra's Bob Holder, has been honoured in his hometown with the Radio Arena named in his honour. The 92-year-old took up the sport in the 1940s and is still in the saddle after beating a serious lung disease. And with a career that long in rodeo. Bob has a lot of stories to tell. I've travelled the world, rodeo, America, Canada, won, won prizes in every country. Oh, Madison Square Gardens, New York was a highlight. I drew a horse that hadn't been ridden for three years, a horse called Meat Hook. Belonged to Harry Knight from Fowler, Colorado. They all advised me not, not to get on him. I said, well, it was my last rodeo before I come back to Australia. I'm not turning the horse out. So I got on and rode him and and made history that day. Shall we have a big round of applause for our local man right there? No, no, it's been good. I've got a couple of new hips in. And my lungs played up for a day or two, but it's all right. No, I'm going good. But a lot of people are worse off than I am. I just want to be a cowboy and I'm going to stay a cowboy. I'm going to keep on going as long as I can, because I like it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Bobby Holder! And it's amazing what a new hip can do, Warwick. And that wraps up Rural News. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Emma Field. 1940s, he started competing at rodeo and still going now with that new hip in mind. Amazing. 0467-842-722 is the number if you'd like to send us a text or you can indeed give us a call today, 1300-977-222 to do just that. We're going to talk a fair bit with the Agriculture Minister about our trade with China coming up. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has just met with the China President Xi, uh, also meeting with the second in charge in China today, being touring markets and alike, and also talking up our trade with China, agricultural trade at that. Australia exported $6 billion of products that had been the subject of the impediments to our trade uh, between uh, exports to China, $6 billion. If we look at those products last year in the same period, it was $85 million. That shows essentially a $6 billion benefit in those months, which has grown since. We'll talk through some of those numbers with the Agriculture Minister. Also, I'll have to ask the Agriculture Minister how the Prime Minister got his hands on Australian lobster in China. I thought we were locked out, weren't we? But yes, many pictures beamed around the globe show the, agri- uh, show the Prime Minister of Australia inspecting Australian lobster 
at markets in China. That's an interesting one to look at. But also today, a big announcement has happened involving agriculture. The federal government has opened consultation on its plan to get agriculture to contribute to net zero by 2050 today. Kath Sullivan has those details and we spoke a short time ago. Well, this is really interesting because, as you know, agriculture has a lot of groups that have made a commitment already to lower emissions. When we think about uh, the red meat industry, we know that it wants to be carbon neutral by 2030. Uh, We know that the National Farmers Federation backed in Australia becoming uh, a net zero emitter by 2050 before the federal government did. Yet, The government now wants a plan to show how agriculture will contribute to Australia becoming that net zero emitter by 2050. It's called a sectorial plan or a sector plan, and it's sort of gone largely under the radar so far, perhaps because so many industry groups have come out in support of goals or targets before the government's even called for this. But essentially, the government wants to map out how a number of sectors are actually helping the the Australian economy transition to be net zero by 2050. And agriculture is the first cab off the rank, believe it or not, with uh, the government seeking consultation open from today as to what role agriculture can play in, in helping Australia reach that target. I was going to ask you if this is something that's happening in other industries, but agriculture is the first. Yeah, that's the first. I think it's one of about six decarbonisation plans that the Australian government has committed to. The Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, announced that a little bit earlier in the year. But um, I think the automo- uh, automotive industry is one of those that will be asked to, to come up with a plan. But it's agriculture that the government's focusing on, first of all, today. Now, I've spoken to ABEs in the past who look at Australia's emissions from agriculture. They think agricultural emissions will be particularly hard to lower when compared to other industries. It's the most difficult gains to to make in some respects. Is that something that will be reflected in the government's plan? Well, who knows what will be in the government's plan, but I guess this is the opportunity for industry and uh, all Australians to basically have a say on the role that ag should play in reducing um, climate emissions. Agriculture makes up almost 17% of the national greenhouse gas emissions, or at least that's according to the, to the accounting from 2020 to 2021. Um, what's that, two years ago, I, I think we're talking about. And I guess... When we look at things that are happening around the world, you know, we often hear on the Country Hour about um, plans that other countries have to reduce their emissions. You've just got to think about restricting nitrogen use in countries like Ireland and the Netherlands or even New Zealand. New Zealand is um, working on a methane tax for its livestock sector. So all sorts of things could be considered when we look at the way that agriculture um, does contribute to, to the warming climate. Uh, the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt was talking about this on radio this morning. He used examples of things like additives in stock feed, you know, asparagopsis to lower emissions from, from livestock um, and, and more efficient use of fertiliser were the couple of examples that I heard him use as potential ways that might see agriculture play its role in reducing Australia's emissions. But I guess this is the chance for the industry to get on the front foot and say what it thinks is the best way to do that. So what happens from here? 
open for consultation until the middle of December. Um, it'll be really interesting to see who does actually take up the chance to provide uh, a submission to this to this consultation process, given I think it has largely gone under the radar for a lot of people. It's an incredibly busy time of year also for a lot of people. Um, the government says this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation about agriculture's role um, in lowering emissions. But uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting one to watch. That's ABC Rural's Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan updating us on what the, the government's done with its consultation on agriculture contributing to net zero by 2050. If you wanted to, wanted to know those six sectors that the government is going to consult on emissions plans, they are electricity and energy, industry resources, the built environment, transport, and of course, agriculture and land and Speaking of which, the Agriculture Minister says farmers have nothing to fear from the government's net zero by 2050 policy. To get into really what they're wanting to know about this, I spoke to Minister Murray Watt about this new uh, method of getting feedback, but also on the Prime Minister's trip to China earlier today. Yeah, that's right, Warwick. Um, Today we're beginning a consultation process to get farmers' uh, communities' views about how we can uh, encourage our agriculture sector to become even more sustainable into the future. Um, We know that farmers and the ag sector have done a huge amount over the last 20 years or so to bring down our emissions, both in the sector and nationally. But we also know that we are going to need to do more. Um, Our international markets and domestic consumers are looking for their food to be even more sustainably produced into the future. And what we also know is that climate change is having a real impact on farmers' incomes. Our farmers are on the front line of climate change and the modelling we've got from ABARES within the Agriculture Department shows that the average Aussie farmer um, has had a profit fall of about 23% or nearly $30,000 per farm over the last 20 years because of changing conditions due to climate change. So really, we need to be doing more both to preserve farm incomes and make sure that we keep those markets open into the future, quite apart from the sort of environmental benefits. And what we're keen to do is get the sector's views on how can we make this transition to a lower emission future. Um, There's already some good work happening, whether it be in feed supplements or coated fertilisers that are low emission fertilisers. There's people adopting more renewable energy into their operations. Um, There's people who are doing great work around sequestering carbon, whether it be on trees or their soil, which is actually opening up new income streams for farmers as well. And that's, I guess, what we want to make sure of in this is that as we do move to a lower emissions future, we actually help farmers make more money, not less, and be more productive, not less, as well as be more sustainable into the future. Should farmers be worried about what path this kind of document could set their industry on? No, I think quite the opposite, uh, Warwick. What we're keen to do, as I say, is make sure that the solutions we come up with are done in conjunction with industry. And we've already had a lot of good discussions with a lot of the peak agriculture sector groups around what we can be doing to help farmers make that change without losing profitability. You know, if we get this right, as I say, there's opportunities to open up new income streams for farmers uh, in addition to growing crops or livestock or whatever they're growing at the moment. And also there's an opportunity to reduce farmers' costs. So there's a way to do this that actually helps farmers make more money rather than making less. 
And as I say, it's a good way of making sure that we can keep those international markets and domestic markets open as consumer tastes are changing and wanting more sustainable production. It's a tricky one, though, isn't it? Because climate change could also pose a a risk, as you pointed to that ABS data earlier, to Australian agriculture, as well as agriculture playing a role in being the solution. Yeah, that's right. And we're certainly not only looking to agriculture as being the only sector that contributes to this task. Um, Obviously, as a government, we've made a commitment to reach a net zero uh, economy by 2050. And every sector of the economy is going to have to play its role. We've been doing a lot of work since coming to office to try to make sure that our energy sector is moving more towards cleaner, cheaper energy. Um, There'll need to be work done in the transport sector as well. But the reality is that agriculture contributes already about 17% of our national emissions. And And ABS says that's going to go up. Yeah, Yeah. as as we move more towards renewable energy rather than coal and gas-fired electricity, the energy sector's uh, share of our emissions is likely to fall. And what that means is that agriculture and transport share is likely to go up. And that, that is going to put more of a spotlight on agriculture. So our government wants to get ahead of the game. I think one of the really exciting opportunities here is that we've known for years the sector has been beca- has been really keen to move towards lower emission practices. We've had the NFF, Grain Growers, MLA, Cattle Australia, all sorts of groups embrace net zero targets, some as early as 2030. And finally, we've got a government that's prepared to work with the sector rather than pretend that climate change isn't happening. And having that kind of partnership means that we can have a good nationally coordinated plan that helps the industry remain really profitable into the future, as well as becoming even more sustainable. Uh, Murray Watts with you, the Agriculture Minister for Australia. We're talking about a wide range of things happening in agriculture right now. Noticed a photo about 12 hours ago posted by the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese uh, with President of China Xi shaking hands uh, and basically talking up the Australia-China trade relationship. That's a big difference compared to where that relationship was just a few years ago. Is agriculture standing to benefit here? Absolutely. I think the agriculture sector probably has more to gain from stabilising our relationship with China than any other sector of the economy And you're right, Warwick, we've come a long way from the days when Australian ministers couldn't even get a return phone call from China to now having our Prime Minister meet with the Chinese President about how we can take this relationship forward into the future. We've always made clear that we're not going to agree with everything that China believes in or does. And the phrase that we use is that we should cooperate where we can and disagree where we must. Um, But even the work that we've done so far since being elected to stabilise that relationship is producing real dividends for Aussie farmers and rural communities. Uh, Basically, the the trade impediments that China had imposed were worth about $20 billion in foregone exports for Australia. Uh, We've been able to recover about $18 billion worth of those, uh, and uh, we obviously expect to do the rest in terms of wine, lobster, and some beef and sheep meat establishments. And even if you just look at the last few months, the fact that those barriers have been removed has meant we've been able to send in about $6 billion worth of barley, timber, cotton, horticulture, uh, other products that had impediments as well. And that compares to last year, only sending $85 million worth of those products into China. So nearly $6 billion in exports straight into the pockets of Aussie farmers, 
rural communities, processes. That's good for jobs in Australia and good for farmers' incomes. You mentioned the items on the list still to find progress. The wine tariffs are being reviewed at the moment. There's those 10 or so abattoirs in Australia of beef and lamb waiting to hear if they can regain access to China. And I noticed uh, the Prime Minister even looking at Australian lobster whilst he was touring in, in China. I didn't think we had access there. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I imagine that I've got to get to the bottom of that. How how some Australian lobster ended up in China, but um, I think it was a really good way of the Prime Minister demonstrating that there is still work to be done uh, with this relationship. And before, again, before those impediments were imposed, China was our biggest market for rock lobster, and that's that's an issue for various states. I've met uh, lobster fishermen and and producers uh, in Western Australia, in Tasmania, in South Australia. I've met them on on Thursday Island at the tip of Cape York. So it's had all sorts of widespread impacts. And we are keen to have that that market reopened. And I think uh, the Prime Minister made a very good point about the quality of our lobster while he was in China. And there's a lot of demand for it. People want to get that high quality, premium Australian produce, whether it be lobster or anything else. And we're obviously keen to supply it as quick as soon as we can overcome these remaining barriers. So in your mind, is it just a matter of time or is there more work to put in here? I've always sort of felt that China was unlikely to remove every single trade impediment in one go and that they would progressively work through each one. Uh, And as I say, over the last few months, we've seen those impediments removed now uh, for cotton, for horticulture, for barley, for timber, for hay. Um, We're well on the way in terms of wine. And, you know, what I would be hoping is that we can now move on to those remaining ones uh, being lobster, and some of those beef and sheep abattoirs. Um, we've, you know, there's been really good progress so far, but we don't think the job is done until every single one of those impediments is lifted. And that's why every meeting we have with Chinese officials, we raise it. I've raised it directly with the Chinese agriculture minister. Obviously, the prime minister has with the president of China, the trade minister with his counterpart. And we'll keep on working until we get every single one of these impediments lifted for Aussie producers. Of course, more trade and having access to more markets is always an important thing and celebrated in Australian agriculture. But at some level, do you worry about Australian agriculture putting all its eggs in the China basket yet again? Yeah, I think that one thing that all of us have learned, whether we're farmers or ministers or journalists or members of the community, is that we can't have all of our eggs in one basket when it comes to our export markets. And that's why we've also been working hard with the industry to diversify our export markets for agriculture. Obviously, we've now got a free trade agreement with the UK and with India, um, which are already opening up new opportunities for our producers into some very valuable markets. And uh, even with some of the existing markets we had, we keep finding opportunities to send new products or more products into them. So over the last 12 months or so, the Agriculture Department federally has opened about 100 new markets across the country for everything from avocados to stone fruit to sheep meat, all sorts of things. And we think that that'll deliver up to about $5.5 billion in extra exports. So I think we've got to be able to walk and chew gum. Um, Obviously, we want to rebuild that China market. It is a very valuable market and remains our biggest agricultural market. But we need to have other options um, should things go wrong anywhere in the future. And that's why we want to keep building those new markets. And it's worth billions of dollars to Aussie producers. That's Agriculture Minister Murray Watts speaking there about a wide range of things. We actually spoke as well about Woolworths, which has committed today to reduce land prices. I will bring you that story tomorrow because there's sometimes 
there's only so much agriculture minister uh, you want on this program. And I understand that. We, we work it out together. On the text line, though, many of you with your thoughts. Warwick, our government still needs to do more work on getting other markets for our produce and getting rid of our reliance on China. That's why I was asking that question, because that's the interesting point there at the moment. China has been a huge boon for agricultural exports, and it has been wonderful. But as we were just talking about there with the minister, the the idea of, again, just becoming wholly reliant on one export market is fraught with danger. Uh, This text says, will farmers reward labour by voting for them in the next election because the agricultural trade tariffs have been reduced? Well, that's... That's up to them and up to you to text me. Thank you very much for that text, 0467-842-722, if you want to send a text. Uh, in terms of carbon emissions, a lot of those coming in with the consultation going out today, John in Harrow says livestock emissions are based on the false premise that ruminants generate new CO2. In fact, they simply recycle CO2 from the atmosphere via the grass they eat. It's wrong to compare them with transport, or with transport etc., which uses fossil fuel, says John from Harrow. Uh, Julian Anne in Buckin says, hey, Warwick, don't worry about farmers' carbon pr- footprint. What about Albo's flying footprint in the last month? I was looking at stats today, saying he's taken as many flights as the two previous Prime Ministers in the same period of time, Julianne. I'm not saying that's good or bad. That's up to you. The government wants to reduce carbon emissions, but at the same time wants population increase. Can't have both says another text message as well. And the chase over at climate change emissions like methane, which is circulating in the biosphere anyway, then approved coal mines that release gases locked up in the geosphere to help overseas countries have cheap energy. Many of you running a sceptical eye over the government's call for feedback on agricultural emissions. We'll have to keep following this from here. It is time, though, right now to go to the regional newsroom for regional news headlines. Branson Gibson has that for us today. Good afternoon, Branson. Good afternoon, Warwick. An 11-month-old baby injured in the Dalesford pub crash at the weekend has been released from hospital. Five people were killed, including two primary school-aged children, after a car veered through an outdoor dining area at the Royal Hotel on Sunday night. Five others were injured, including a woman who is in a serious condition in intensive care. The baby was released overnight. The Dalesford Interagency Response Group says services will continue to be available for anyone requiring mental health support after the horror crash on Sunday. Central Highlands Rural Health is offering drop-in services from today until Friday at Raglan Street in Dalesford and recommends the use of phone services, including Beyond Blue, for after-hours support. Hepburnshire Mayor Brian Hood says it's important community members continue to support each other in the aftermath of the tragedy. A Gippsland MP says the reduction of police counter-services in the region is a step in the wrong direction. Victoria Police announced 43 police stations across the state, including the Lakes Entrance Station, will temporarily reduce the time counters are staffed to allow officers to conduct more community patrols. Nationals member for East Gippsland, Tim Bull, says as the Lakes Entrance community prepares for a busy summer, police numbers should instead be increased. Four patched members of the Rebels Outlaw Motorcycle Gang will appear in court today after a spate of raids and arrests across Bendigo yesterday. The men are charged with aggravated home invasion and assault after two men were injured in a New Year's Eve dispute that started and ended with a car chase. Police arrested another two men from White Hills, but released them. Echo Task Force detectives will allege that they found vials of steroids and seized mobile phones, knives, swords, two utes and a baseball bat from the homes. 
And that's the latest in ABC News headlines. For more news and stories, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks. Thanks, Branson. Uh, Branson Gibson there with regional news headlines. Uh, Warwick, along with you for the country hour today. Plenty of your texts coming in. We'll get to more of those. If you have a question for the Weather Bureau, because I think we're going to see a bit of action weather-wise uh, over the next day or two, you might want to send a text, 0467 842 722. Michael Efron is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Back with us again today. G'day, Michael. G'day, Warwick. How are we looking around uh, regional Victoria this lunchtime? Yeah, so we'll start off, I guess, in, in the far west and southwest of the state, looking uh, pretty settled for the rest of today. We did have some low cloud and fog through the southwest this morning, but that's almost uh, cleared. But should be dry in, in that region today, there west of a, a low pressure trough at the moment. But to the east of that trough, we are likely to see uh, those showers and storms becoming uh, more extensive. We did see a little bit overnight, um, and just in the last half an hour, it's kicked off just to the east of Mildura, and that will track south-southeast uh, into eastern parts of the Mallee. Also seeing some showers and storms over uh, the northeast at the moment, so um, extending from, uh, I guess, east of Shep down... Uh, towards um, Mansfield, that sort of area. So continuing to build there through uh, the rest of the afternoon and through central districts as well and, and even eastern parts of uh, the southwest. So quite an active day today, uh, reasonably warm with northerly winds, looking at temperatures in the high 20s or low to mid-30s, uh, 35 today at Mildura, 33 at Echuca, 28 at Hamilton, 24 at Warrnambool, so a little bit of uh, relief there right along the coast. And Michael, is that going and to bring more have... than expected rain in terms of those that, that action east of Mildura and east of Shepparton? Yeah, very much hit and miss um, totals. So not a, a widespread rainfall event, but there is a fair bit of moisture with it. So we could see some uh, locally higher falls of 15 to 30 millimetres out of these storms, but you could also see some areas just miss out uh, completely um, looking at, at the nature of these cells. So at the moment, a lot of central Victoria is clear, but I think through the afternoon we'll see that cloud building and the showers and storms are developing. We do have a moderate thunderstorm asthma forecast for all districts apart from the Mallee and Wimmera, so something to be aware of there. And on Wednesday, similar pattern with that trough over Western Vic. So the far west and southwest are staying dry, but east of that trough, looking at showers and storms again, especially through uh, the afternoon, and those storms could be severe as well. So something to, to keep an eye on there. And, and similar temperatures, uh, high 20s or low to mid-30s, apart from that far southwestern region, Warrnambool 19, Hamilton 23, uh, Mildura up to 35. And then on Thursday, that trough does move a little bit further east. So I think the showers and storms ease over central parts, but continuing over eastern districts, especially the northeast. We could see some severe storms there on Thursday afternoon. And for a lot of uh, eastern and northeastern parts, temperatures in the mid to high 20s or low 30s, and the far northwest, low to mid 30s again. But through the central district and in the southwest, looking at the high teens or low 20s. And then on Friday, we see that trough weaken as another trough approaches from the west. So Friday looks overall a pretty settled day and warming up through the northwest even more 
up to 39. At Mildura, 38 at Swan Hill, Echuca, 35. Elsewhere, Wangaratta, 33. Uh, Salem Bansdale, 28. Melbourne, up to 30. So pretty warm on Friday. And then that trough to the west moves through on Saturday. So we will see some isolated showers and storms developing, mainly in the east, but also cooler southerly winds extending from the west. So somewhere like Warrnambool only expecting 17 on Saturday. Melbourne, 21. Swan Hill, 33. Etruca, 32. Salem, Bansdale, 24. And then Sunday, Monday, and even next Tuesday, we're under the influence of that southerly air stream. So... High teens or low 20s in the south, mid to high 20s across the north with not very little rainfall expected, but quite an active few days coming up. Yeah, I've got Andy on the text line going, hey, Was how far west are the storms likely to come? I'm assuming that's for today. From memory, Andy's quite southwest. So uh, any advice there, Michael? Yeah, so in terms of today, I'd say we're looking east of a line about Horsham to Colac. Um, for, for those storms. So if you're west of there, I think it's very much a, a redu- reduced chance, not just today, but uh, tomorrow as well. And uh, that rainfall, I'm looking at your, your radar now, a bit of red even and, and yellow going on around east of Mildura. So does that tell us that when the rain is falling there, it's quite heavy? Exactly right, yes. Yeah. So we do have um, reasonably high moisture levels uh, at the moment, the last few days of those northeasterly winds are bringing that moisture down from other Tasman seas. So these cells, when they do develop, are, are quite intense. So uh, we could see warnings out uh, throughout this afternoon. Uh, and as far is there anything else massively that we should be keeping an eye on there, Michael, warnings-wise or otherwise? No, just the storm warnings uh, potentially. So keep an eye out for those and. Um, you know, if, if you're travelling around um, the, the state today, just be aware those storms could produce some stronger gusts and potentially some damaging winds. So um, could could uh, result in some fallen trees and debris uh, around the place. So just be aware of that. Much appreciated, Michael. Thanks for the update. Thanks, Rory. Michael Efron there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through... The next few days on the forecast and a bit of weather happening right now, as I said, a bit of red on the radar outside east of Mildura. So that's in the New South Wales uh, side of the border, really, there. And there is that big line of cloud or rain going from Marysville all the way up, almost a direct line through to Griffith, uh, which is pretty interesting to watch as well. So stay safe wherever you are and you have an update or a rainfall update, you know what to do. Join us tomorrow. Send us a text. Tell us what's going on. We'd love to hear from you. Speaking of the text line, a couple of still coming in on the trade with China or on the government calling for agricultural feedback on its plan for net zero emissions by 2050 uh, on trade. This one says that rock lobster is going into China via Thailand and being rebranded. That's the interesting thing. And we do know about this, right? We called the grey trade, if you will, where we've seen abattoirs or products uh, without access to China go in. It used to be through via Hong Kong, uh, but there are other uh, markets and ways to be traded in. But the lobster that the Prime Minister was holding on this big tour of China was branded Australian, and we're not meant to have access right now, right? That's what made that image so interesting to see, and the Agriculture Minister had noted that himself. So we'll have to uh, keep an eye on that as it goes on from here. 
obviously lobster finding its way there, but it'll be interesting to see if the market will open up more in general as we move on. Let's come a lot closer to home. We won't talk uh, trade with China right now. Let's talk about levy banks protecting your homes or your farms from floods. The state opposition's calling on the Victorian government to accept responsibility for maintaining the state's network of flood levies. Currently, levy maintenance is commonly the responsibility of private landowners, even if those levies are on Crown land. It's been a fraught uh, argument to do with flood recovery, flood recovery and flood preparation for generations across many flood events. Now, a Nationals member for Mildura, Jade Benham, says levy management needs to be coordinated at a statewide level. I think the main issue is that there's a little bit of conjecture over who is responsible for managing and maintaining these levy banks. What the issue is now, though, is whose job it is to maintain and to manage these levy banks. And if there's no formal agreement in place, then it's up to the direct beneficiaries to do it themselves. Now, food food and fibre producers are not there. They're not civil engineers. They did their very best in a lot of cases to get these levy banks built while the water was coming to save their their stock, their farms, uh, their crops for the year. And now it should be, you know, these are these are the the points that we've also stressed in the past is that because the landscape has changed, that we need to keep up to date with where the water will actually go and whose job it is to maintain these levy banks that we actually need. Okay, so it seems there are levy banks in two categories and if we could go through them individually so one being those mm. formally managed ones the other where they're the so-called beneficiaries essentially the private landowners are tasked with managing them first up those ones that are being formally managed and in many cases local governments have that responsibility but do they have the resourcing to be doing that sort of work no the point is that local government do not have the resources to manage uh, all of the the urban levy banks, and we know that they are responsible for the urban levy banks. But the ones that are that are further afield on crown land, on rural land, they really need to be under the. I would suggest that the the water the water authority, and then if that if there's no formal agreement with with the water authority, then it's got to be Parks Victoria, surely. So one of those state government departments could be directly responsible and have much better resourcing and much much better expertise to deal with the maintenance and manage of a, of a levy bank and maintain them rather than just be left to deteriorate and be ill-effective the next time we need them. And as you've indicated, this is set out in the state government's floodplain management strategy. And just to read from it, it says that uh, if there are no formal arrangements for a, a level of government to do that maintenance work, then it's up to the local beneficiary, as you said. So in that case, adjacent landowners, uh, first up, they actually need to apply, don't they? So they need permission to do it. They essentially mm. needing permission to... Uh, spend their own money and resources on on yeah. maintaining levies that that you're saying have got uh, that serve the, the greater public. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the fact that they would and we we understand, you know, there's there's 
in some cases, there could be many different overlays. There could be heritage, uh, cultural heritage overlays, native vegetation, all that kind of stuff. We get that. Uh, but the process in applying for a permit to spend your own money to maintain what is essentially a state government asset, one would argue, particularly if it is on Crown land, like Murray River Banks, et cetera, et cetera. These levy banks, some of them are many, many decades old and in, in some cases haven't had a lot of work done to them since they were initially built. So obviously through successive terms of government on, on both sides. So if, if, if the coalition was to come to power, is this something that you would look at? Would you change the way that this floodplain management strategy uh, works and would you put would you be happy for the state government to shoulder more of the responsibility for, for maintenance of them? I think it's certainly something that we'd have to look at. And actually when I had when I get again when I brought this up last week in uh, in Parliament, I, I it started many conversations with the Shadow Minister for Water, of course, and people that had been involved in the last uh, management plan, the last floodplain management plan back in 2011. So I think it's absolutely common sense is our uh, our central pillar for the Victorian Nationals. So common sense needs to prevail here. So it's it's something that, uh, you know, among other things, it's something that we'd have to look at. And you're right, some of them are decades old. Common sense needs to prevail and they need to be managed well. That's Jade Benham, Nationals member for Mildura, speaking with Angus Verley, Minister, Water Minister Harriet Shing was contacted for comment and in response uh, a statement says more than 4,000 kilometres of levees have been constructed across Victoria over the past 100 years, most built without any design standards so their structural integrity can't be relied upon. Some of Victoria's levees are formally managed, typically by local councils, and are built to a high standard aiming to protect local communities. The remaining levees aren't formally managed, end quote. Uh, We'll stay with flood recovery and questions of management uh, after last year's floods that continue to this day on the country hour right now. Local council is lobbying state government to change the way Lake Yildon is managed after communities clean up the damage of a third flood in 12 months. Mayor of Murrindindi Shire, John Walsh, says 44 properties reported damage after flooding occurred in communities downstream of Lake Yildon on October 4th following a large rain event. He said hay production in the region was hit hard and the country has struggled to recover. From the surveys that we've done, uh, there are about 44 properties impacted by the flooding. Of those, uh, about eight of them lost power during the floods and uh, about 17 didn't have road access because of the floodwaters. And on top of that, there are about 30 other local businesses in the tourism area that uh, were impacted uh, and some of them even had to close for a while uh, just purely because of the fact that uh, there was no access to those areas. Uh, the major one that uh, had a really rough time was the local caravan park at Molesworth. It had only just reopened after the initial October 22, then the June uh, floods. It only just reopened and then October the 4th came along and they had to close again. Hopefully they're going to be open for this weekend, which is the uh, Cup weekend. There's a major event at Molesworth this weekend. Lots of um, cattle farmers in that area, like yourself as well. Um, what was the impact on primary producers? major impact uh, there was two areas um, there were some stock losses even with the October floods more along the lines of um, stock um, drinking contaminated water and getting ill uh, the other major problem and it's been a problem throughout the whole year is the fact that 
uh, pastures that were replanted after the October 22 floods have then been flooded again. And uh, because of the high flows that are still being or were still being released out of the dam, uh, it's meant that very little drainage happened and so the pastures have died off again. This in turn is impacting the uh, production of hay uh, and it's really probably cut it by at least 50% within the area, which won't only affect us, of course, but uh, given uh, the fact that there's droughts happening in the rest of the country, that also is going to limit the availability of hay that traditionally comes out of this area. So as you mentioned, this is the third flood event in around 12 months for the region. What have been the impacts, I guess, on recovery? Have there been a lot of setbacks, obviously, it sounds like? Well, clearly, uh, as I mentioned, with the uh, the pasture regeneration, it's, it's, it's a major setback and a major financial loss for a lot of the farmers along the Goulburn in particular. Uh, I know of one property where they tried re-sowing their pastures twice and lost them uh, each time. So that's something that uh, is very hard to bear, and uh, we're working with that particular family to make sure they're okay, um, as we are with all the families along the the, uh, the river. We recently held a, uh, uh, a small event, not so much an event, but we went along to the local cattle sales at Yay uh, last week uh, and provided advice to people. And it was interesting how these days everyone, regardless of the, whether they're close to the river or not, um, monitoring the reports out of, from Gold Murray Water about the lake levels, uh, which are still very high. Even yesterday it was at uh, 99.7% full and uh, all it takes then is just one major rain event we'll be back having another flood. So everyone's on tenterhooks. Um, it was pointed out at the um, parliamentary inquiry that we attended down in Seymour a few months back that some of the people along the, uh, the river have been anxiously looking at reports and rain since about June last year, and it gets tiring if everyone's living under those sort of stresses all the time. Landholders have told us here at the ABC that, yeah, they want to see Goulburn Murray Water and water authorities create that more airspace in Lake Yildon to mitigate this kind of flooding. Where does Council stand on, on that? We're fully supporting those ideas. Uh, we've been advocating since the day after the flood when we had a meeting with the uh, Water Minister that to uh, have a review of the uh, the way the lake is managed. We know that currently, uh, because of our uh, lobbying, we're uh, doing some studies into the impact on the overall uh, availability of irrigation water and then also the ability to help mitigate flooding. Uh, they're doing studies on various uh, levels that they would aim to maintain rather than going for 100% by about November, which is, well, sorry, October or November, depending on the year, um, in order to have maximum availability for irrigation, that perhaps uh, they could bring it back down to 90 to 95% to give a bit, bit better margin for error in, in the case of uh, unexpected rainfalls. One of the things we keep pointing out is that everyone is aware of climate change that their models and everything that they're using uh, is based on uh, historic data, which is changing all the time at the moment. So we think there should be uh, a greater level of risk management and, uh, as I say, a, a greater uh, recognition of the impacts locally and further downstream so that the risk is better managed overall.
That's Murrindindi Shire Council Mayor John Walsh speaking there to Annie Brown. You're listening to The Country. It's the race that stops the nation today, and I'm sure many of you are running an eye over horses that are worth a lot of money. Well, some very other other very valuable horses have also uh, been winning major awards of lately. The Melbourne Cup of Camp Drafting might be the Warwick Show. Well, that's what it's known as anyway. Representing Gippsland, Vicky Hiscock was named Champion of Champions on the final day of that show. And just hours later, husband Michael took out the Gold Cup as well. Now, back in Victoria, Fiona Broom got Vicky to show off her famous horses. Come on. Come on. Come here. Come on. I won on a horse called Bama Lamb and that her grandson. Yeah. And a few years ago, back in... 2017 and 2019 I won up there on a horse called Steph and that's her daughter so when we go up we we go up with about eight horses and when we finish competing on them they stop at AI centres and we embryo most of them because it's quite a big business now uh, breeding horses so we breed and train um, our own horses for ourselves but we usually sell one or two a year um, just probably finance our very expensive habit <laughs> and just having a win at an event like in Queensland kind of boosts the value of your horses oh definitely it sort of boosts our profile of ourselves and our horses we're not professionals uh, we're dairy farmer and beef farmers I run the dairy Mike runs the beef we just do it as probably a paying hobby on the side that's it this is a very curious horse. I'm getting quite a lot of love right here. Yeah. So Bamalam um, had a daughter and we called her Alabama. So all of our horses that are lineage to Bamalam have got names that rhyme with Bamalam or some. So this is Slam. She's had Slam, Bam, Shines Like Bama. And she actually had triplets while we're away. What makes the Bam Lamb family so so enticing, so interesting to, to people who are looking for camp draft horses? Well, she's known to be fast. Um, and she probably shines when we go to Queensland because we're chasing a lot of your Brahmin cattle, which are known to be fast cattle. Um, so she's very fast. So if you're camp drafting in different parts of Australia, you're working with different cattle? Definitely. So when you go right up into the Gulf... They're straight-bred silver Brahmins, often helicopter mustard or motorbike mustard, and they're only mustered once or twice a year. And so you go out onto big stations there, and those cattle may have only seen uh, people once or twice a year, so they're quite alert. And, and by nature and breed, they are so athletic. They can gallop fast, they can stop on a dime, they can spin you know, and you've just got to have a really fast, sharp horse for that. Is it the same kind of attributes that you would want to see in, say, a, a racehorse, or is there some different um, skills that they have? So we'd probably look between a racehorse, because we want them fast, and a sheepdog, because we want them to have strong cow instinct. So if you could cross those two, that's probably what you get. So my husband horse that he won the Gold Cup on, her name is Hazelwood Advice, and that's the second time she's won the Gold Cup which is only happened twice before in history. We went there with the intentions of having a great time and, and enjoying our horses. And to come away with a win is exceptional, but for both of us to win at the largest camp draft in Australia was rare, but it was also special for us. How many camp drafters are women? When I first started going to Queensland in, in the year 2000, 
there wasn't there was quite a few there was say out of the 650 there was probably 75 uh, now I would say that number has doubled but what makes it different is they have gotten so much better and they have their own team of horses now so most of the women don't jump on their husbands or their father's horses anymore they actually have their own team and that is what made them so much better and you know we have some real great leaders female leaders and they're you know they run their own businesses and they get on their horse and they mean business they're out there to win and you know we look at each other and think good on you girls and we you know we push each other that's Tanamba Dairy Farmer and Camp Draft Champion Vicky Hiskosk speaking there with Fiona Broom. You're listening to The Country House. Time to get right into markets, actually. Let's head to Ballarat Sheep and Lambs to start things off for you this afternoon with Shiona Lamb. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers jumped by 10,000 with 36,500 drawn for. All the usual buying group attended with extra store buyers present. Not all operated fully and some watching on. The market opened softer and cheapened slightly as the sale progressed. Light store and trade lamb sold 5 to 10 cheaper. Medium trade were back 6 to $9 a head. Heavy trade sold 5 to 10 softer. Heavy exports were in limited supply and sold to eight cheaper. There were still sales reaching 5.20 to 5.40 cents for the very neat fresh skin lambs with good fat cover, with most averaging 4.40 to 4.80 cents a kilo. Lambs back to the paddock made 10 to 81 for the lighter weights and 80 to 110 dollars for the lambs over 18 kilos. Export lambs over 26 sold 133 to 180 dollars a head to average 5.10 to 5.30 cents. There is still one agent to sell lambs and 7,900 sheep to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thanks, Shiona. Let's go to Wodonga now and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. 1,050 cattle were offered on Melbourne Cup Day. Heavy cattle in limited numbers and quite a few regular processors never made it to the sale this week, which did impact prices. Veal sold 20 to 35 cents cheaper, 150 to 265. Trade steers were back 25, 155 to 280. Feeder steers were firm, 145 to 220. Trade heifers Gain five, one fifty five to two forty five. Feeder heifers too few to quote, one fifty to one sixty seven. Heavy grown steers were down thirty five cents, one sixty to two oh five. Bullocks fell eighteen cents, one seventy four to two oh seven. Heavy heifers were shaped, one seventy to one ninety two. Heavy cows were ten to fifteen cents cheaper, one forty five to one eighty nine. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Leanne. Lucky last today on the market run is the Shepparton cattle sale. Nicole Varley has those details for you. Good afternoon, Nicole. Good afternoon. Well, a small yarding on the Cup Day holiday. Most buyers were in attendance. We had 450 exports and 145 trade cattle here at Shepparton. The heavy cattle sold at cheaper rates. Beef cows had mixed results, while the better conditioned dairy cows lifted in price. The trade cattle had several lots of speckled park steers that had been supplementary fed that remained at similar levels to last week. The odd sale a little stronger. There was a mix of secondary cattle about. The odd veal are made to 210. The yearling steers range from 195 to 220. Yearling heifer portion 155 to 240. The grown steers were mainly crossy types in the heavy section. The 400 to 500 kilo steers, 160 to 210. 5 to 600 kilo steers, 172 to $2. And the heavy bullocks reached 220. Well-covered beef cows made from up to 190 cents. And the large-framed dairy cows reached 173. This is Nicole Varley from Shepparton. 
Thanks very much for that, Nicole. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour for another day. As I said, tomorrow at one major supermarket, at least in Australia, the price of lamb is dropping by 20%. Now, prices at sale yards have fallen by much more than that. But is this a positive sign for the industry? Is it a positive way to clear a backlog of lambs and reduce prices? You can join me and tell me what you think at the same time tomorrow. Catch you then.